Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Whoa, what's going on? I'm not Ben Bateman. I'm Andrew Guy. But today, one thing is for sure, we're going to be talking about Starship Troopers, and maybe it might be at its most relevant in its entirety of existence. Stick around. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's action movie anatomy. Oh, yeah. See, we always open with music, but I didn't want to tell the guys because why not? Why Why would I? I want to keep you guys on your toes. What's up, everybody? It's Action Movie Anatomy. I'm Andrew Guy. Kind of a surprise. I know Ben is not here. Two weeks in a row, we're a little bit out of character, but... I have got two amazing, amazing guests with me. I've got Mark Andreco. You guys all know him and love him from the movie Trivia Schmodown. And I've got Ed Newmeyer, the writer of Starship Troopers and RoboCop. Yeah, that deserves a round of applause. How are you gentlemen doing today? Good, good. Good. Yeah. Couldn't be better. It's good to be in Burbank. This is one of the great things about living in Los Angeles. You get to hang out and do podcasts and stuff with esteemed writers like this. I mean, you guys are both esteemed writers, and it was one of those things where Mark and I, we talked about how uh, I'd, I've been wanting you on the show for a while. Ben yeah. and I had talked about it. You know, we're, we're good friends. We, I love a lot of movies that you like to destroy. And uh, vice versa. And vice versa. Um, but one thing we agreed on is that we both absolutely love Starship Troopers. So um, he was kind enough to bring on Ed, and Ed was kind enough to make it here. So guys, this is Action Movie Anatomy on the Popcorn Talk Network, the network dedicated to talking movies and all things movie-related and pop culture by the bucketful. This is Action Movie Anatomy, and on this show, all the movies that appear on this show, for the most part, adhere to four basic rules, and those rules are as follows. Rule number one, the hero always plays by their own rules. How do you guys feel about that? Does Casper really play by his own rules, or is he kind of at the mercy of the... Uh... Well, go ahead, Mark. Well, I think, he's, I think his motives in the, in the original before he becomes Johnny Rico of Rico's Roughnecks right. and chasing the girl... But then once he's there, after you see, you know, after he gets the lashes and he realizes that Buenos Aires has been destroyed, that's his moment, I think, as a viewer, where he finally comes into his own, where he's now doing something because it's the right thing to do, not for someone else. Yeah, what is it? What does the uh, the colonel say? He's like, bite onto this kid. Yeah. Makes it hurt less. Yeah. <laughs> you, what do you think, Ed? Do you think uh, Casper plays by his own rules? Well, I, I get the split you're you're making, uh, but I think actually this is really a story about what happens when you join in with your you know sort of your warrior culture, yeah. And you have to learn that your your needs are less than the needs of of the great the greater good. Many, you know? yeah, I like yeah. that. Okay, so rule number two: the hero and the villain are always the smartest people in the room. I think I can speak for all of us when we're saying Casper probably isn't the smartest guy in the room, but he is the hardest damn working guy in the whole room, and he yeah. makes up for. 
maybe the lack of knowledge to do that. Well, you know what's great about the movie is he leans in. He, he leans into being sort of the the equivalent of a golden retriever. Right. You know, he's really loyal and really fervent and very focused. But his character isn't going to, you know, split the human genome or anything. Right. That very, very true. Uh, and then the brain bug is clearly the smartest creature in the room. It is the definition of the smartest creature that is the size of a room. Uh, rule number three, the, the movie is driven by a police, military, or political figure. I think that's pretty straightforward. And rule number four, the movie contains a minimum of one explosion. Starship Troopers has plenty of yeah, explosions. It has one every reel, I think. Yeah, yeah that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, so, guys, today we're going to be talking about a lot of things that you know and love. We're going to skip some of the normal things that we discuss because we have a special special guests in studio. But what we will do right now is hop in and all watch the trailer together. I don't remember this. I mean, 90s were a weird time for trailers, you know? There's a cause worth fighting for. Yeah, this old voice. But in the future... The greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. Man, when that first bug comes in and rips the dude in half, oh. when I was a kid, I was like, oh my god! And, and what's the special effects in this movie, for a movie that's almost 25 years old, this movie stands up to movies today. This oh. movie is... The mix of practical and digital is seamless. Well, it's also it's Phil Tippett, who we had worked with on RoboCop, and is a genius. Uh, he did the uh, he did Ed 209 and RoboCop, but he also did the Walker sequence in uh, uh, the second Star Wars. Okay. Uh, we have you know, that guy. We have uh, ADI uh, uh, doing all the, the full size stuff, hydraulic bugs and that kind of stuff. That's uh, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff. And didn't you mention that ADI has an exhibit at the Hollywood Museum? They, the you can currently Museum? see a, a full-size warrior bug at the Hollywood Museum uh, in the old Max Factor building in Hollywood. I just was there. Check it out. But anyway, we had a, a really good team. Uh, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Most of the movie is built around what they can make in that way. The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? I mean, it looks great. Yeah, that's the biggest explosion, apparently the longest explosion ever made. Real, really? That's what that's what we were told at the time by John Richards, who, who really liked uh, to make long explosions. I literally have goosebumps watching yeah. that trailer. Yeah, the trailer is <laughs> oh. sick, man. It holds up. And, you know, Ben and I talk a lot on the show about how the trailers kind of really picked up as you got into the early 2000s. That is an amazing, amazing trailer for 97. So you were saying in the Max Factor building you can see a full-size full size wa- full, full-size warrior bug and a bunch of stuff about the making of Starship, the, the, the brain bug and how it worked and how it was articulated and run by six guys behind it. And, and that Max Factor Museum is a great resource no one knows about in Hollywood. It's on Hollywood and Highland next to Ed's Drive-In. And it's a great Art Deco building. It's what, four floors of stuff? It's four floors of stuff. And it's, it's, the old, it's, the, it's where makeup, Hollywood makeup was invented and sold. Yeah. Uh, back in the day. So it has this kind of patina of the old, old Hollywood there, which is nice. How big is the actual, the practical size? Um, there, it's about, I think it's, the, the bug itself is like 
is meant to be seven feet tall, which so it's about seven feet tall, slightly higher than a than a man, and but it's fifteen feet when it's spread out, so it's, oh, wow. it's quite a big uh, what pl- uh, footprint it has, you know, depending on what it's doing. We have a, we had a, a friend of the show. His name is Ryan Brookhart. He's a director, and he is a huge fan of collecting practical size movie novelia, and no matter what it's from, you know, usually it's always sci fi stuff, but he he would be totally into that. Uh, all right, guys, so we're going to hop into our very first segment today. This is the thesis statement. And for all of you guys at home that don't know what thesis statement is, this is a big, bold thought about the movie. Your personal thought. It shouldn't be something like, oh, it's my favorite this, or I enjoyed when this happened. It should be like, this is the greatest this, or the greatest use of this, or this movie changed my life because um, if you were at a party, a Starship Troopers party, and you only had one point to make, this is the point that you would make. Uh, do you guys want to jump in first? You want I've, me to? I've got one. Oh, Draco's ready. He's foaming. What, what do you got, brother? And I will stand by this. I think Starship Troopers is the best science fiction film of the 1990s. Wow, wow. That, that is, is cool. That Jeez. is huge. And we had a ton of great science fiction films in the <clears throat> 90s, but this one is one I can revisit. I could watch this movie every day and still cackle like a happy kid watching it. I mean, it does make you feel away when you watch it. Like you feel like you're having, you're on a ride that is, it is all the most enjoyable things about but, sci-fi. Action. But even with the visuals, it's also so damn smart. I think that was the curse of it when it came out originally, because people didn't get that it was a satire. Yeah. And it's never smug. It's never too cool for school. You can watch it like you did when you were nine, as enjoy it as a big sci-fi gory action film. Yes. But as you get older. It, it just gets, it's got, you know, it's like when people talk about wine, there's so many flavors and so many hints of things throughout this movie. And watch, I watched it again last <clears throat> night yeah. as well. And right now it's so prescient because of this fascist government that people blindly follow and are just grist for the mill. That and, was a trip to watch. And at the same time, it's super progressive because the way that Paul and Ed handle women in both RoboCop and this. Women are never addressed as weak or as women. They are equals. And and it's so subtle that I would love to see the kid, the young girls who watch that movie who are now working in the industry and, and got empowered because of that. I, I love it. And I, so I want to just really quickly, we're talking like Terminator, The Matrix, Lost in Space, The Fifth Element, you know, like... Did you just say Lost in Space? That movie's amazing. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. It's been on Netflix, okay, the last month. Okay, if it's free and there's nothing I'm else just, on Okay, I was hoping you'd acknowledge it. What about the other three that I mentioned that are hailed as maybe three of the greatest films of all time, sci-fi-wise? Um, I think I think they are legitimately great, great sci-fi films, but this is my Desert Island sci-fi film. Okay, I dig it. Wow, uh, that's nice. That's yeah, nice. I mean, Ed, that's, that's nice. got to be a pretty... Yeah, I don't know if I get to go to the Starship Troopers party, but I would say <laughs> the thing that we... That, that we talked about a lot when we were making it. The thesis statement we arrived at was, war makes fascists of us all. And, and I think that that's sort of the human way of looking at that idea of what happened. One of the dangers of being part of warrior culture or an authoritarian culture, cops, whatever, is you got to fight that impulse to solve everything in a certain way. Yeah. And, and that, that was, I think, what we were writing about there. One of the things that's interesting to me about Starship over the years is how many people in all walks of life like this movie and identify with it. And one of the areas where it's very popular is among the military. And I just keep running into people over time who have a, a very positive and very sincere experience with the movie. One time we were at Comic-Con with uh, Casper and Dean, 
And somebody got up, a, a guy got up, and he said, this movie, when I was wounded and blown up by an IED in Iraq, this is the movie that pulled me out of it. And your character pulled me out of it. And because, wow. and it was really powerful. Uh, I had another kind of more amusing experience once. I was uh, at a, uh, you know, a, a U-Haul getting my propane tank filled. And uh, This is a sexy story. Yeah, this is a really sexy, sexy story. story. All those and this, start. And, and this, old, <laughs> this, this guy who looked like a soldier with Varney's sunglasses was working there. And soon he told me he was working between deployments and that he was in Iraq or Afghanistan. I think it was Iraq. And that he had seen this movie. And I said, oh, I wrote a movie once, a science fiction movie about the military. And he said, Starship Troopers is my favorite movie. He never <laughs> even. And I said, oh, that's the one. But that made no difference to him because what he was telling me was how this was the movie he showed, showed all soldiers when they came in country. He sat them down, and he, saw, as a sergeant, said, you have to watch this movie. And I said, well, well why would you do that? And yeah. he said, well, you remember that scene where the lieutenant gets killed, and the squad leader says, I don't know what to do? Well, I was the guy who said, kill them all. And that's what every soldier needs to know. And so this was a serious, serious story about survival that yeah. meant something to this guy. Anyway, a very amusing. And so that's the thing that amazes me about the movie. Well, at the risk of sounding really pretentious, that's what art does. Right. Art makes you feel something and you might not it might not be the intention of what you were behind it, but if the art moves someone in a way that affects their life, that's a win. So Richard Clark, who was a pretty big terrorist anti-terrorism national security advisor, wrote a book whose the name of which I can't remember now, was an advisor to Bill Clinton and he told uh, the producer John Davison who was speaking to him that Bill Clinton used to watch this movie on a loop. And then Bill Clinton would be in the middle of, of a meeting where it was on, and he would say, wait, 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 and then Johnny Rico would blow up the tanker bug, and he, and he would be delighted, and then the meeting would go on. So, what do you think it is? Why, why, why do you think there's this fascination behind it? Because my thesis statement is that I adore this movie for the most ignorant, naive and adolescent reasons that you possibly could because I watched it when I was nine. We've covered 180 movies on this show, and I like to think that I'm a pretty intelligent movie critic when it comes down to it. But when it comes to movies like Starship Troopers, because of when it came out and what it did for me as a child, you, you know, the, the shower room scene, the women playing quarterback, the, the legs and limbs getting blown off, the huge bug. For me, it's just this... Something this, for everyone. Yeah, well, that's, so that's what I mean. Is like, So when writing this, you know, we talked you about... You hit puberty watching I this movie. I hit puberty watching this movie in front of my mother and her boyfriend, Tom. It was a horrible, horrible moment. But you and Tom bonded over it, didn't you? We totally did. That's what I'm saying, is Tom was like, ah, just... Because, okay, so as I said... Uh, I know how I get this kid to like me. Here, watch this kid. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I said... I'm going to go take a shower with your mom now. <laughs> <laughs> Like I was just left alone. A very special episode of Action Movie Anatomy. In case you didn't know, now you know. Uh, that was that's so funny. But yeah, so I, I talking before the show, we we're saying how this movie is so ahead of its time. But it is a movie for everybody, even people in the military. Even it, when it feels like it's it's a, it's a, it's a satire on on the military, straight up for for the most part. But people are finding inspiring moments in it. How do you think you were able to get the best of both worlds in that? I don't know. I think that with I think the it's a open and it's a the military is positive in it. Yeah. And, and it says, well, the military isn't always positive. It even goes so far as to say we don't even always tell the truth about what we're doing. If you look at the news, that's part of it. But the experience of being part of a military society 
where there are rules of behavior and where people behave and where people act in a, a valorous way is also very attractive to people. I think it really says that we are a species that thinks a lot about war and a lot about order and protection and security. And this is kind of speaks to that in a way. And because it's light and it's not overly talky and it, mm-hmm. it, it sort of acknowledges a truth somehow that is important to people. I think that's what it is. And it's a very it's a rite of passage in a way. In some ways, I would say it's a very masculine rite of passage, as is RoboCop, the movie itself. Yeah. For a couple generations now, this is the movie you go to over to your friend's house to watch. This is the movie your dad says. I swear to God, I've heard this so many times. I'm going to show you RoboCop, but don't tell your mom. Yeah. This is my favorite movie. <laughs> and, and, and then there are also women who like the movie, too. But it is this kind of thing that I think a lot of guys really relate to. Oh, that's what you do. You know, that's where you're, you know, anyway. Yeah, well, because the movie is super, super macho, but you see it from both the sexes. Yeah, but look when Dina Meyer leaps in and Clancy Brown is stepping on her throat. I mean, there's just no, you don't go, oh, that woman's going to get her ass kicked. I, for the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, she's going to, she's going to knock him on his ass. Yeah. It's so great. And what's great about the movie for me, too, is like you had said that some military people see it as a pro-military movie. Which I'm I'm surprised to hear that, honestly. Not because. I can see that. Okay. Because what's really great about it is since Casper is the central character and he's a grunt, it's not following. Following the generals for the most part, or following the big fancy pilots, they're secondary characters. This is a very in- inviting movie for the average person, and it shows that soldiers go to war for, with in- good intentions, but they're manipulated by the cowardly general at the at the Mormon outpost. Yeah. You know, the guy's like, I find the idea of a brain bug reprehensible. Right. You know, you have these people that don't actually fight, con- putting these people to death, and we are kind of those bugs, and the brain bugs are the people back in the, the government. And so it, it, it's a very even-handed thing because, for me, the moment that really affected me at the end was when they bring out that last brain bug. Right. And Neil goes up and touches it. Neil Patrick Harrison says, it's afraid. It's afraid. It's sudden, I love it suddenly that humanizes, for lack of a better word. Yeah. It gives these, it gives these, these bugs fighting us pathos because they have emotions and it's suddenly once you once you know somebody on the other side they're not just faceless bad guys well and that's such a a very important thing i mean i love the movie edge of tomorrow i think it's a phenomenal movie but it's one of the it's another one of those things where the mimics are just kind of a faceless heartless creature that kills and you get a lot of that in starship but that line at the end i remember uh, last night i was kind of like doing something in the moment and then i heard it and i like stopped you know, and you kind of stop and you're like, I need to check in really quick with this. And I remember that line. I was like, oh, yeah, this is also the brain bug dying is one of my favorite things ever. The, uh, <laughs> the I think that's Phil Tippett, who is uh, a great special effects guy, but who is also maybe the best actor that is never acknowledged as such. Because he, in his ability to make these creatures and, and dream them up and then express them in performance, creates something that's likable. And he knew he told me early on. As did, uh, he said, oh, the brain bug, people are going to like the brain bug. I love the brain bug. And you're going to feel bad for the brain bug at the end. Now, I don't mind that you feel bad for it, and I think it's funny, but you do feel bad for it, even though it sucked out Xander's brains in front of you. Yeah. Well, he was kind of a dick anyway, you think, but, (laughs) you know. That that just, that proved to me that his character had brains. I was like, oh, wow. Oh, uh, come on. Patrick Muldoon's a great guy. No, he's great. No, he's great in the movie. He plays him such he plays him like Reggie or uh Well, you know, by uh, the way, you just said what is the secret to Starship Troopers? It's Archie. Just if you look at it, it's Archie. 
It's Archie. It's Jughead and Betty. Well, maybe season five of Riverdale will be in space. (laughs) What is the big problem that Archie has? Is it Betty or is it Veronica? We we often talk about that in life now, and that's what Johnny Rico is having. Same problem. Is it Betty or Veronica? Did you you guys intentionally pick uh, when they're having, when they land on the the bug planet and they're... um, Ironside gives him the football and the keg and stuff, and the black soldier is playing pre-Civil War music on a fiddle. There's something really... Well, it's actually, it's Boo, Gary, it's, it's um, uh, Boosie. Uh, is oh, that's playing. right, I'm sorry, but the, no, but the black actor dances with uh, uh, Dizzy. That's right, uh, He that and he's dancing to uh, Dixie, yeah. and then the romantic dance is uh, La Golandrina from The Wild Bunch. Uh-huh. And yeah, that was absolutely the. Paul thought it was a very funny idea that you would be having, you know, people doing a hoedown together, and just as a statement on race there. In this, I mean, one of the ideas there was that in this future, you could have a form of of, of fascism, uh, wherein you didn't have certain problems, you didn't have sexism, you didn't right. have racism. Yeah, maybe other problems, but those weren't the problems. And that was just a, a, an idea that was always kind of lurking around that we were playing with. That it was a, an attractive, a benevolent kind of... Well, uh, I got to say, when RoboCop came out, I was... It was, what, 1990? Uh, 1987. 1987. So I was 17, and I was watching it, seeing, thinking it was going to be this cop action sci-fi film. And I remember watching those commercials, and I'd buy that for a dollar. Right. And Miguel Ferrer's character, there was so yeah, much... Miguel's so great. Oh, so good. Um, but it's almost like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And it's, and it's not that you guys are being didactic or telling us a point of view. We can kind of figure it out if you know... If you've ever seen Paul be interviewed or not, I'm talking to you. But it allows you to make your own choices, and it treats you like you have a brain. It's a, it's dumb summer film, but it's not dumb. Well, yeah. it's posing as dumb, and yeah. that I, exactly. I, I love that. That was my sort of thing. It's amusing to pose like, well, you're sort of playing back. So it's almost an American character, you know, the 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 uh, the trickster character, because you're playing like you're dumb, but you're not really dumb. And Paul's not dumb, and he knew what we were doing there. And you're kind of using the language of B movies to play like, well, this is really stupid. It's fun, but it's and actually then there's so something on else point. going in yeah. there. Well, I think that when it works, that's what we were we were doing, trying to do. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so, as a gay man, I got to ask, how did you get Rue McClanahan in this movie? <laughs> you know, I didn't know she. I don't know. She just that was one of those lucky accidents, and I don't didn't know. I didn't know that she was even in that character. I think the 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 uh, Neil Patrick is a more interesting oh, yeah, uh, aspect of a that. Gay, like, a gay, a guy who comes out dressed in black leather as like, okay, now this is what we have to do. It's all numbers now. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, the Nazis were music. bad, but they had great fashion sense. So they had sense. great we scientists. Were, yeah. and we are still <laughs> using their fashion sense. Uh, yeah, I think that's a perfect segue into our next segment, which is the a fist pump moment. That's the moment when you're watching the movie and something happens. You look around, something falls off the wall, and you're like, holy <laughs> shit, are you seeing this? This is crazy. You want to call up your buddy be like, Mark, remember in Starship Rivers when this thing happened? I don't care if you're at a wedding. Look at your phone right now. What is that moment for you guys? Uh, I can start off, or either of you guys can jump in. I've got two, and this movie is full of fist oh, pump moments. Oh, there are moments. so many. This movie is 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 just so exhilarating but the two my two favorite fist pump moments are Casper on the back of the giant bug when he shoots it yes. and throws the grenade in it and the guts are spraying everywhere because it's such a seamless mix of practical and CG and maybe even stop and, motion and the look of the teacher his old teacher his the, old teacher the, the, oh, the yeah. lieutenant he's yeah. just like ah. 
<laughs> and the other moment I think is, and this is a testament to how great a director Paul Verhoeven is, is the destruction of the spaceship that uh, um, mm. Denise Richards and Pedro mm. Almodovar and Brenda Strong is their boss. Because you have this crazy stuff going on outside the windows with ships exploding. You have, and you follow them through as they try to get an escape pod, and as they go back down to the planet, they hit this body floating in space. Right. And once again. It's 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 never called out, but the commander of this giant spaceship is Brenda Strong, who most people probably know as the voice of Mary Alice right. from uh, Desperate Housewives. But the special effects in this movie and the fact that in so many action movies, bad directors overcut things because they don't know how to stage an action scene. In this movie, you know exactly where you are in every single frame of it, and it makes it – you feel like you're one of the soldiers because you know the space. And that is – that is an invisible talent, but it's a talent that I wish a lot of filmmakers would watch and, and learn. Well, even the very simple way well of... Uh, yeah, it was yeah, very well said, Mark. Uh, even the simple thing of just changing the perspectives of the movie opening with the news broadcast and then coming back full circle and seeing that happen from the third-party point of view was just like, it's slightly ahead of its time. It's just like, this is a movie. This is a move that a B-movie wouldn't make. This is putting in that extra bit of effort to make it's, you really feel like you're in the world. It's a move a studio wouldn't make today. Exactly. When, when Casper, on that newscast, the bug is in his, t- goes through his yeah. leg and then comes at him and it blacks out. I didn't know if he was gonna or we, if he was gonna survive to the end when it circled back around. Honestly, when I'd revisited this maybe a couple of years ago and not watching it in maybe a decade, I was like, "Oh shit, does he die right now?" I couldn't remember exactly what happened. I was like, "Oh yeah," and then it goes back, and I was like, "Oh, I am so in." And 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 for me, my fist pump moment, it's when you see Ironside come back out with the metal arm mm-hmm. and he gives the speech. He's like, "I got one thing to say: everybody fights, nobody quits. And if you don't do your job, I'll shoot you myself." Welcome to the Roughnecks. And I was like, fuck yeah, man. I am so on board. I am nine years old all over again. Like, let's do this. So I would guess this movie got more people to sign up for the armed forces than Top Gun. I wanted to sign up for the military after watching I, I this would, movie. I would not be surprised because that's also true of the movie MASH. The yeah, movie yeah. MASH was the best recruiting tool they had for a while there. Well, because, again, like as a, a, a 9, 10, even 15-year-old watching this film, it, it, some of the bigger... Uh, you know, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? The bigger message, for lack of a better term, kind of go over your head, you mm-hmm. know, and the rest of it, you just see the shiny, pristine, the beautiful, the pretty ships, the war and all that, and, like, I was in. I remember having the conversation with my mom and my sister. They're like, you're Uh-oh. going to Canada before you <laughs> sign up for the military. Uh-oh, sorry, mom. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, What's yeah. great about this movie, too, this, both RoboCop and this movie, is you're presented with what you think is just going to be a really good cheese pizza. Yes. But it's not only a good cheese pizza, it's good for you. Because <laughs> it treats you like you can keep up with it. And so many movies now are passive. I always like, whether it's something I'm writing or something I'm watching, I like leaning in. Yeah. If I lean into the screen, I'm engaged. If I sit back, it's watching someone play a video game. Well, you want to make your audience use their brains. Yeah. And, and as an audience member, you like to feel intelligent when watching a movie. You know. Yeah, I, I often think that that entertainment there is entertainment and, and there's it's 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 fine where you're just distracted. It's um it's almost like a diabetic diet though. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, afterwards yeah. you go, well, that was great. What was it? And so I think the the thing that Paul and I were always trying to do is to give you something that you would think about later on. And uh, it sounds like for you guys that worked. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Did you have a do you have a moment, Ed, or have you just seen it so well, many times to, you wrote to, it? To, it is a little hard that way. But to speak to your two moments are interesting because they are both moments that others have noted to me. I remember the 
seeing it the first time it ever screened f- was in Sacramento for a live audience that didn't know what they were seeing. And they actually got up on their chairs when Johnny Rico was on top of the tanker bug. I was really like, oh my God, I cannot believe, I've never wow. seen an audience do this. They were so, it was tribal kind of, very masculine, this kind of roar came up in the audience. Now, I never saw that happen in a theater, but in that, in that, in that screening, that happened, and it was fascinating. And your, to yours, I remember the exe- an executive at Sony came in, and he said, there's such a feeling about when Ratchet reappears, like the audience feels like, oh, good, there's an adult here. That's and, so and, true. And I thought that was interesting when you said that because that's what that was like. Oh, this guy's here. Yeah. And that and that shot of the of the hand of the metal hand and the music right there is really great. Oh, it's, it's really it's ooh. Excellent. Who is this guy? I want to know if since Sony, well, I guess Sony has RoboCop, right? Um, MGM has RoboCop, okay. and Sony I- sometimes gets involved with financing these things. There should be a Robo RoboCop should exist in the Starship Troopers world. Oh, for sure. It could be because Starship Troopers would be a, a, a thousand years later or five hundred years later. I want a I new want, RoboCop fighting Johnny Rico as the new using old RoboCop technology to fight the bugs. Maybe you just when get they land Peter on Earth. Weller could come back and be Robo in yeah. the future. You know? Yeah, there yeah. you go. They have them unplugged behind a refrigerator in a warehouse. <laughs> hey, all right. So you Ed, you just told us your first time viewing. I told you guys mine with my mom and Tom in the shower. Uh, what was yours? Do you remember, Mark? Or yeah, no? I, you was, do? I was telling Ed. Uh, before we did the show, it was the when I I had just moved to Los Angeles. I had been here less than a month, and it was the very first film I saw in the Cinerama Dome. What did what, did you come to LA to be a writer? Um, I had been working on a film up in Seattle with a director I had assisted on a film in Cleveland, and I just knew that I was sick of being in Ohio with snow. Right. And I had a buddy who managed an apartment building, and I was you know I was in my twenties, so that's when you just look leap without looking yeah. and i came down here and 21 years later i'm sitting next to the man who wrote the first movie i saw in the cinerama dome it's it's crazy that is so crazy man that is uh that's that's one of the coolest things i've heard on this show so hell yeah uh <laughs> moving on to casper van diem and his star profile uh what we were going to do uh casper was going to be here he unfortunately couldn't make it but fortunately for him, he just booked another role. He's in a fitting right now, so I'm, I mean, we're all very happy to hear oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he, he was very bummed. He really wanted to be here. Uh, but one of the things that we do is we do star profiles on this show, and that's basically we talk about the three things that Casper or the two lead stars had done before getting into this movie. And, and he was basically a TV actor, and he'd also done this James Dean Race with Destiny, which actually ended up being advertised as the star of Starship Troopers is James Dean in this film. Because I don't know if it was released later or if they just did that for the box cover. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, like, maybe coming upon Casper? Like, I know writers aren't usually completely involved in the casting process. Well, I I, I was, in in this case, pretty involved in it. Oh, that's great. And and was around for all of it. In fact, um, uh, there was sort of the, the key moment, I think, was there was a moment where where Paul and I were talking one day in his uh, at the production office right as casting was starting, and um, we knew it was going to be Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, <laughs> the movie, and I said, well, if we're going to make Triumph of the Will, Paul, shouldn't we be doing Body Beautiful? Shouldn't these people be really beautiful? Yes. And he went, I could just see his face. He went, oh, and the amazing thing about Paul was he just did it. 
He just went and did it. And um, he really decided that, and I do think that was not because it was my idea at all. It was like a considered idea, and as an aesthetic choice, it really made it about something. So that put us into a certain kind of actor that we could use, and it made it less, it, it's more hyperbolic and less real in some ways, more on steroids. And and it, I don't know, it seems to suit it very well. So that put us into looking at a whole young group of people who had just been on TV and play, in things like Melrose Place. Right. Which this was sometimes called Melro, Melro, Melrose Space, Mel- and <laughs> and so all of them had known each other and had all done those shows together, and they were all kind of really bright, clean scrubbed looking people. Yeah, I known uh, I knew Casper from this from nine hundred two and zero when he was one of, Don, one of yeah. Donna, Donna Martin's awful boyfriends. Oh, was he? Yeah, he burned a building down, but that's a whole other show. <laughs> so you saw him, and he kind of just filled it exactly what well, you wanted. The, the story we always tell if Casper were here, we would tell the story. I I had an office that was. Right, looking at the people as they would walk in to go down to the director's office to talk to them, and I so, used to sit there and handicap it. I would go, "Oh, that 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 person, that yes, person, no, not no, that person, that person." No. And when Casper walked walk. in, actors I, love I, hearing I, that. I, I saw him, and when he walked out, I said, "Hey, wait a second, come here." And he, and he came into my office, and I said, "So tell me about yourself." And I had a, for some reason, I had a a a, a, a paratrooper rifle on my desk with a bayonet on it. Just to make a statement of some sort. And Casper picked it up and started doing close drill with it, where you kick it and you spin yeah. the rifle and stuff. And he said, he, he said he'd been to military school, which he had been. And I had seen him already as like, oh, he's that really handsome guy. I mean, he looks he's, exa- yeah. he's, he's the Aryan uh, ideal dream. That, that jawline and is oh, it's so phenomenal. I said, I, I just said, you know what? Take care of yourself. Stick around. We may be needing you. And he always remembered that. He thought, oh, I got the part. I got the part. But that he hadn't heard that. Yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he had to do a screen test. With Did you know right then that he'd gotten the part? No, I just was looking at no because I didn't. I didn't really have say say. I was going right. to look at all the the tapes with everybody else, but. I knew it was going to come down to he would probably be one of those guys in there. It just seemed like there was no other choice. If you understand that decision to go for these really gorgeous people. And then when Denise came in, we did a screen test with he and Denise. And, you know, it's just so ludicrous because they're so good looking. Oh, they're and, and, absurdly and it's good completely looking. completely amusing. Everyone, and, I mean, I, and I think that's what happened, you know. Yeah, we got the chat open here and people are talking about a lot of their first crushes were Dana Meyer and Denise Richards and Casper <laughs> and, you know, all these. I mean, they're beautiful. They're all very, very beautiful people. Was Denise uh, more of like a... Cause she was like a, just a little bit more famous at the time than Casper was. Not much, but... Well, actually, Dina was the most famous. Yeah. She was the biggest actor on the show. She had done Dragonheart mm-hmm. and Johnny Mnemonic. And so she right. actually had a, quite a profile. And she and, had a great arc on 90210. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Apparently she I missed did. 90210. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so she they, they were all three in there, and they were kind of... You know, uh, uh, Dina's a tough gal at some level, but she's also really sweet, and everybody really identifies with her as though really sweet. So she's Betty, and uh, and you know, uh, because of the way she, uh, Denise looks, people make assumptions about her. She's actually incredibly sweet. Right. She's like a sweet girl from San Diego, and there's nothing you know, there's 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 nothing scheming about her. But as a brunette, and one of the problems we had actually with Denise was there was a, a, a tiny little cut we made. And it's in the scene where Xander and Denise uh, uh, Carmen are training, and she's she's talking to Johnny uh, on the phone. And for a moment, you saw Xander in the background. And we, when we screened it the first time, the fact that she was cheating on the hero with that guy 
was so enraging. Oh, yeah. right? That's the, the, audience. the letter she sends him. People talk a lot about that. Well, but there was just a shot where it showed like she was talking and, oh, he's there. Oops. And and that part, the cards that came back from that audience when yeah. this when we had that in it were so vicious. Well, I read that's what I was reading about the yeah. reviews. I mean, this movie was like, you know, it was it was moderately re- uh, received when it came out, but people were fuming in that test audience because they just couldn't believe that a one woman or man could be in love with two people at the same time. Well, we, also we, we Paul and I were talking about you know we were <clears throat> we were a little older by then and we knew that actually out in the real world when women you know and men were getting together they would often pursue their interests by pursuing someone who was interested in what they were that's how people learn to do things right. but that's the audience doesn't see it that way the no, audience no, says no. don't don't dump the hero is what and the audience another says. Really, particularly if he's handsome uh, yeah. uh, you know then you're <laughs> yeah. in real trouble another really interesting thing that just sort of came to me hearing you talk is that Johnny and Carmen their roles are kind of reversed he's she's kind of the masculine yeah, energy she's in got that the relationship, two, yeah, you know, and and it's once again, it's never played for camp, and it's never played as you know gender weirdness. It's just she's so confident, and she's like, oh, I'm going to go do this the same way in a, a World War II movie. The guy tells his girlfriend who's going to be riveting, right. I have to, I have to go do this. Wait for right. me. I'll be back. And in just two to years. flipping, and that it's it's all it's all so subtle in a movie that's all about extreme that it's. This movie shouldn't work as well as it does, but I'm getting so... I'll, I'm going to go watch it again now after talking yeah. about it. I want to watch it right now. Well, look, so the audience here is asking... We got you know a bunch of people in the chat here very excited to see both of you and uh, asking some questions. Ed, for you, um, you know, the satire being such a huge part of this film, when you were writing it, they're at, let me just ask it straight up instead of trying to make it a... Did you actively decide to make it a satire, or did it kind of like slowly unfold? But I'm Paul seemed to be pretty clear. Well, on that. I mean, RoboCop. When Paul and I did RoboCop, that I knew I was writing a satire. Yes. When I sat down to write uh, Starship Troopers, which I had read as a kid, and and went, I went back to John Davison. It was right after Jurassic Park came out, and Jurassic Park had been done by Phil Tippett, and the digital revolution had begun. And I said, you know, uh, John, we could do Starship Troopers. Hmm. And he went, really? And I said, yeah, we could do Starship Troopers, because Phil will do the bugs. And we both knew without saying, oh, and Paul would be perfect for that. Right. And so it was always designed as a, as a satire, but a, you know, a sincere military genre movie if you were a certain age, and a satire if you were another age. And I, I did go back and forth for a moment. I didn't know if I wanted to repeat using the media break stuff from RoboCop, but then I... Was, Would you like to know more? I was yeah. taught... Uh, that was the line that made me think, oh, I'll do that. And kind of moving it towards the... The, the computer world that was happening then, the interactive world. And I think that John Davis and the producer really wanted me to do it too because that was something we... It's humor, it's different. And as a narrative thing, it's it's really powerful because you can cover a lot of ground very quickly in, in a way that people find, uh, you know, okay to... to it's much to more that. palatable when yeah, it's I think given so. to you that Absolutely. way. Yeah, yeah. The other really interesting thing about the movie is it's also a love letter to movies. I mean, did you guys watch Z- Shaka Zulu with when the bugs are coming around in, in the, the, the Mormon out? Post or did you watch? Because there's also you describe it as Triumph of the Will, meet something. It feels to me well, like well, it's all those war movies, and it has a lot of that 19th century stuff. So, so one of the the charge, the charge of the Light Brigade mm-hmm. is we studied that for the bugs charging and falling like the right. horses are falling. That was I remember on the set we had to go out and find it, the Charge of the Light Brigade somewhere. And so we yeah, that was always I don't know if, if Zulu, people talk a lot about Zulu. 
what I didn't realize I was doing at the time, which is shocking to me, is I because I'm a big Western fan and a big John Ford mm-hmm. fan, is I'm writing a, a John Ford cavalry picture. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and if yeah, you go absolutely. out and look, and suddenly I'm sitting, I sat in Wyoming on a, at a fort, I say, and yep. I did not figure <clears throat> that out until after the movie came out, you know, that I was just, you know, I was just, channeling all that stuff. So that's what well, I that, we were that doing. That scene when they're at the outpost, that's been ki- all the people have been killed, and they look up over the wall, and you, and you just the see them, you see those bugs teeming over each other for miles yeah. it's so terrifying and today today it looks real it still looks it, fantastic the special effects yeah. in this movie are are beyond and, and they're in da- broad daylight they're yes. not hidden it's not underwater the name Phil Tippett must again be uh, he's a genius it's beca- it's so good because of him everybody who worked on the show knew that 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 show actually set Phil up in a new facility in a new digital way I mean I think it he was able to take the success of Jurassic and all that he had learned and then apply it. The next movie was this one, which was How Lucky Can You Get? Yeah, I mean, we talk so much about because we covered a lot of movies from the late 80s and the mid-90s and stuff, and, and it's really the practical. The practical, the movies with the actual practical effects hold up the absolute best, which is why, I mean, the first Jurassic Park is a masterpiece. Uh, so when working with Paul when, when making this film, you talked about how you'd read Starship Troopers when you were a child, mm-hmm. and so it was easy for you to kind of pick and choose the things that you really loved about it from that age and then also kind of, you know, make it more mature or uh, uh, palatable to a more mature audience. Mm-hmm. Paul had no interest in reading the book at all. Eh, don't worry about it. It's, uh... I can't believe my alarm. I've done this. It's uh, terrible. No, nah, don't worry, dude. It's uh, <laughs> But it's a very powerful TV uh, It's my producer. show. We can do whatever we uh, want. So this is good for my career. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so can you talk about like what, what you took from the book that you really loved and, and the parts that you made work and the things that maybe what about it that Paul didn't like that you had to nix? Well, okay, so a brief history of, of, of science fiction, my science fiction as a boy. Uh, Robert Heinlein was, uh, was then known as the Dean of Science Fiction, and he kind of wrote hard science fiction. And he did a number of, but he, he, did, he did a number of uh, uh, juveniles first, and they were called his juveniles, the last of which was Starship Troopers. When mm. he wrote it and turned it in, uh, to the publisher, they refused to publish it because it was considered uh, fascistic, it was considered too political, and then it was published by somebody else and it went on to great, great popularity. Um, when I read it as a kid, I, you know, I read the book and thought it was this great story about a guy jumping on a spaceship and a girl and this kind of stuff. That's how I read it. All right. And when I went back to when when then I pitched the movie and I made up a bunch of stuff and it would be this and this and this and then I went back and I read the book and it was like nothing that I had remembered <laughs> right. and it was really this long political uh, treatise about why the military is right and why you need force and blah blah blah. Well, yeah, I basically so there's read... a little of that in the movie and there are some characters in the movie, but most of it, I I actually and I and I have a great respect for Robert Heinlein. I feel he taught me to write as a kid because I read all his novels as a kid. But and maybe my love of science fiction came from there as well as some others. But but I, I ended up using very little of the actual book because it's it's mostly political theory. Yeah, I remember reading quick notes on it. They're like saying it's a very right wing pro military political. But have you you've read it as well, haven't you, Mark? Yeah, I read it in junior high school. You love it, don't you? The book? No, I thought the book. <laughs> I you know, know I, had, I had a friend down the street who was giving me my. You know, he introduced me to Dune. He introduced mm. me to Asimov. And I remember reading Starship Troopers and feeling like it was the the equivalent of like one of those books you'd pick up at the airport. It's a good right. time waster, but it doesn't really. And if you read it when you're twelve or thirteen, perfect. it's really great. But reading it as an adult, it's like reading Catcher in the Rye as an adult. You're like, 
What? Well, I'm glad yeah. you said that. I have exactly. I had never said. Had never read Catcher in the Rye, and I had exactly the same I, thing. Like, what's wrong with this guy? Oh, the, 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 <laughs> yeah, like, the, come the, on, man. Be cool. About, yeah. Talk about <laughs> white privilege. He's he's angry because he can't go on vacation with his rich yeah. family. Uh, get in line. I have a question for you. Sure. Um, people forget that this was co-produced by Sony and Touchstone, which was part of Disney at the mm-hmm. time. Did Disney have any issues with the amount of graphic violence and sexuality in this movie, or the, po- the political edge to it? You know, they didn't, and they were silent partners. Uh, it was a financing deal. Uh, my my memory of this was the producer John Davison, as usual, right, said, "Yeah, every few years they do this thing where they co-produce some movies. The studios get together and share the budget. But then what ha- inevitably happens is they the, one of them hits, and then both sides are angry that they didn't have it all, right. or or they all flop, and everybody says we're never doing that again. So it was during that one mm-hmm. of those phases. And I think that Disney, you know, was making a lot of movies, and it was a finance a financing deal. And I think it did well for." them around the world because I think they had internationals but I, I don't I remember Joe Roth then president of Disney or CEO coming to the set once and talking to the director and and ignoring me completely I, w- <laughs> I would love to see Paul Verhoeven and Joe Roth in conversation Oh, they were very. He was very polite to the boss. No, I'm not saying there was anything bad about <laughs> right. it. But two complete titans of the industry and from different parts, it would be interesting to see them talk. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that those are all about. That's all about. I mean, those conversations, as I've seen them, have all been about Paul as director wanting to make his movie, and he's very careful and polite. Right. And uh, these are the guys who have the money, and they they want to make sure that he's going to do it right and not spend too much of the money. You know. Yeah, I would, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> They're not as, as well, interesting Mark. as you think. It's mostly about money. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, as everything is in Hollywood. Uh, talk to me about working with Paul a little bit. I mean, you know, you've worked with him a couple times on two of the most cult classic followed and adored films of all time, honestly. I mean, Robocop and Starship Troopers are definitely in the top ten of those types of movies, I think. Well, my big advice to anybody who wants to be a successful screenwriter in Hollywood is go find Paul Verhoeven because, (laughs) you know, if you have somebody who's that talented who you can get along with, which was one of my great delights, you can really do something good, and, and it takes a lot to do something good. To you know, it's, it takes a lot to make a movie. So I, I, I have to always say, you know, one of the great strokes of luck for me was getting meeting and getting along with Paul Verhoeven. And we spent, we spent, we've gone to we've gone to breakfast for twenty five years, you know, or thirty years actually. Now. Right. And uh, we just we had a way of working. We liked hanging around each other, and I think he amused me, and I amused him, and we could talk forever and ever and ever about all of these different things. And a lot of people don't have the stomach to just talk about it. Forever. Right. And so that was very helpful to me as a writer. And we we really had a, a shared aesthetic about a lot of things, violence and you know, politics and uh, sexual politics and all that kind of stuff that was part of the conversation and would often find its way into the material just because we had talked about it. And so he it was part of a larger creative process that I'm really very grateful for. And I kind of can't believe, as time goes on, I can't believe I had that opportunity and got to do all those things uh, that way. And uh, I know that, you know, Paul was sitting around patiently waiting for me to write the script right. so he could make the movie. But but and then I would go with him and work on the movies too. So I was a producer on the movies and really with Paul on on RoboCop and Starship, I was I ca- I became the sort of the 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 assistant on the set with him. And I was he used to call me his European assistant director. And I would go around with a piece of paper and a notebook and say, okay, do we have the claw for the scene where the you know it stabs Dizzy? How big is it? He wants it bigger. You know, those, right. that was my job. 
and kind of trying to protect the script and make sure everything happened the way it was supposed to. And that was a very fascinating process. Well, yeah, I mean, we've <clears throat> we had the um, the treat of having Gavin O'Connor and Anthony Tambagas on um, wow. that worked on Warrior together, and you know they're very good friends, and it's a very similar thing when you hear them talk about working with each other is they're very like-minded people they believe in the, the passion of the project not in you know the, the studio's uh, ideals and like they fight for everything that they believed in from the very beginning and they're kind of un unwavering as much as you can be in hollywood you but know you see that with you know with working with friends there's a shorthand yes and movies are so stressful under the best of circumstances yes. they'll you see why Paul and Ed have worked together, or De Niro and Scorsese, or you know Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, because there's a shorthand, and that those you probably save hours and hours of each shooting day by knowing you can finish each other's sentences. Yeah, and you want a good support group, a good director. You know, I used to I used to direct theater, and a good director surrounds himself with good department heads. Yes, who, who they, absolutely. He, they can he, you empower them to give their best work based on what you know. You have the final say, but you can tell when a crew and a cast had fun making a movie. And I think the joy about making this movie is why it's so timeless because you feel like it's like summer camp. You feel like you're part of. Rico's Roughnecks. You want to be in Rico's you're Roughnecks. There. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. I have to say that probably, I think everything you're saying is right, about particularly about communication with people you know and you can work with. And that's, communication on a set is, is just the most important thing, that all the ideas keep getting communicated and are there. And it helps if you have a shared mindset. I don't think anybody who worked on RoboCop or Starship Troopers said it was a joyous experience. Really? Oh, it was very tough on everybody. Well, yeah, and, yeah and I, I think Paul uh, Phil Tippett described RoboCop as being in a slow motion car accident. Oh, Jesus! And you know the but but it was just because it was stressful and it was yeah. working at a very high level. It was stressful for me on both movies in different ways. And you guys were inventing technologies for special effects, weren't you, to an extent? Well, I mean that wasn't something. That, yes, things were being done or being used in 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 ways. I don't. I I think that with Phil Tippett's shop, there was some invention going on, but I think it was always in, already in a line of what was happening, and so it was it was all high stakes. And the more money you spend, the more the pressure goes up. That's, That's very really true. what happens. Uh, a day of filming that might have had a little bit, well, actually, could, probably could have had a lot of pressure on it, was the shower room scene, which I think is a very notorious, if you look into the making of this movie. Everyone is naked on set, including Paul drops trow to shoot the scene, and I heard you were just walking around ass naked for a week. No, well, actually, I was not. I, was not, I, I have been the nudity czar on a couple different movies. Have you? I have, and <laughs> it's not, it's, it's not, but I wasn't on that, I wasn't on that one in that I wasn't on the set, because Nobody who didn't have to be on the set was on the set. Right, of course. And that's completely the way it ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in that one, what was really amusing about that was that's, that's, that sequence was one that all the actors were a little nervous about doing. Hey, well, what do you think? I've had to be shirtless in a movie, and even that was just okay, like... Okay, so uh, probably then you can relate because you know... Well, if saying. I have to be shirtless, it's a horror When movie. you had to be shirtless, you said, okay, this week I better not eat too oh, many cheese dogs. like two you weeks. Know, yeah, right, yeah. and I better work out. And Okay, so what was very... Well, the way it worked out, and I, I would like to say <laughs> we did this on purpose, but the, the um, shower scene was always held as a rain cover set. So when we were in Wyoming, if we had too much rain, we were going to use the shower sequence to do that. 
And then it just kept getting pushed back through the schedule, pushed back through the right. schedule. So that meant that all those actors were working out all the time, and they were always oh, hungry. Oh, I would have been so and they were, mad. <laughs> so, so it worked out very well that way. And, so it was and, literally like being a soldier. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and it was a scene that everybody liked doing. And then Paul and, uh, okay, so Paul, the DP, Jos Vicano, is from Germany. And in Germany, they have a kind of a nudity culture. And, and Jos Vicano was as I am now, uh, as, you know, almost 60. And Paul was, I think, uh, a little younger. I love so this. just to break the ice, they decided that they should take... The, Paul said, I, and he took his pants off. And he, he got undressed and, and said, there. And, and, and Yost, who did it too, but Yost was quite happy not to put his clothes back on. <laughs> He's like, so, what are we doing? <laughs> so anyway, luckily they're not in the movie and the, and the actors are. That's amazing. Know? Honestly, like, I mean, be, I mean, I'm not like an actor or anything, but being an actor that's worked on films, that is the type of thing that you would hope your director would do. That is, that is a super badass move by Paul. Um, just going to breeze through these numbers very, very quickly. Uh, as Mark mentioned, it was co-produced by Sony and Columbia. It cost $105 million to produce. Uh, I'm sure there was marketing in there as well. It came out on November 7th of 1997, and it grossed $54 million domestic, an additional $66 million foreign, for a grand total of $121 million, uh, and it opened at number one at the box office. So it... it, it it broke even. It made it, it, a little bit more. It probably did well, particularly well with DVD. DVD came in just at that moment, and it was. I know the DVD guys at Sony were like, "This is going to be great, right? And I, we're going to sell this all summer long." And so I think it worked that way. It was not a. It was not considered a giant success when it came out. In fact, there were a lot of bad. There were a lot of not bad feelings, but like, uh oh, we worked a long time, and now here we are, and it's. And it, it, it's dropped 60% or 55% after the first weekend. Right, right. And that was kind of hard. I mean, it was, most, life was not most fun Most really for a while classic then. movies were not, <clears throat> didn't do well initially. Wizard of Oz was 100%, a failure. I yeah. mean, and, and for a movie that cost this much back then, every single penny is on the screen in this movie. And I do believe, and I'm sure the internet can check this out for me, but I do believe I read when um, this was one of Sony's best selling DVDs of all time. I believe oh, that's I'm true. I'm sure that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I, I because I bought it nine different formats. <laughs> you so, have one here. So I might, I might have paid for a couch in your house. <laughs> um, but I, but it's a movie that that is timeless. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think getting into the critical, that's where this is really interesting. So IMDb gives it a seven point two, and basically an eight point two and above means you're in the top two fifty. Ben and I have gone back and forth for three years about how we feel about that list. But one thing we can say is that usually any movie above an eight is usually pretty enjoyable or mm. at least well made. Um, <clears throat> But what I think is very interesting is IMDb is usually a little bit more critical, and it gives it a 7.2. And then you've got Rotten Tomatoes here with 63, 57, and 69. Mm -hmm. And that's where it feels like those people missed the boat. Like, they missed what this movie was about. And IMDb got it, and they're going to pick apart certain things, but... 7.2 is a great score for a movie like well, this. Well, we've also, I think, in recent memory, you know, like people talk about they give movies a lot of rope because they're just dumb summer movies. Right. When I was a kid, the dumb summer movies were Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, nominated for Oscars, E.T. nominated Jurassic for Oscars, Park, Jaws, yeah. the Star Wars movies. So you can have a dumb summer movie that's, that is dumb in the sense that it's a ridiculous conceit, but it's smart. Yeah. This movie, this movie, this movie has multiple levels, and it's a movie that when you revisit it, because I will admit the first time I saw it, I was kind of 
jarred by the level of satire in it. I, yeah. The way it was advertised, you see that trailer, it was like a big Terminator 2 kind it of action so, movie. Like, yeah, yeah, and exactly. then you go in, you're like, oh, this movie's got so much more in its mind than I expected. So I don't think it's, I think these scores are based by people's expectations, not by the actual film itself. If you like that, if you if you, if you you liked it, it worked for you. But 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 particularly when it came out, a lot of people in this country didn't get it. In now, this if you, country if you being go the to, if you go, yeah, to, exactly. if you go to England, they really got it. Yeah. If you go to France, they really got it. And it, and now we really get it too. We're living it in time. <laughs> well, I just think it, it it slowly got re-reviewed over time. But the initial reviews when they came out were a little bit. Um, uh, Ken Turan is a friend of mine, and and his review was he now says that was a really good review, but his review was 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 uh, was kind of tough on it, and it's like it's just Fairholme and it's video game, and it's and there is a garish, vulgar part of what is in uh, Starship and uh, RoboCop, just of the movies I've worked on with Paul. And some people react to that badly. They don't like that. And so I think that that hurts the reviews a little bit. But the people who like it really like it. But what's great about that and RoboCop (laughs) are both war and violence are garish. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with vulgarity and war and violence. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing at all about that. And I think that makes people... People go in expecting maybe like a Friday the 13th thing where the kills are all cool and fun and it's just cordwood. But in both of these movies, they have a point of view. And seeing mass entertainment that actually has a point of view is rarer and rarer and rarer as we get as these things become. Well, as, as we proved, it, it, it seemed like a good idea but might not have been initially. You know, I mean, I'm glad it got made as I am glad that other movies like Wizard of Oz or Vertigo got made that, that didn't make money. But for the people who want to make money, they probably looked at us and said, those guys are dangerous. Let's yeah, not so play with how did again. you feel when it came out? Like you said, it was like we spent all this time and, you know, it's kind of being lukewarm received. What did, what did that, how did that make you feel, Ed? Well, um, I actually kind of thought that was, I kind of knew that was going to happen and everybody thought I was insane. Okay. And then when it happened, that didn't make me feel any better. Right, you're like, you know? I told you so. Yeah, oh, no, you shit. couldn't say I told yeah. you so. So it was a little, you know, it was a struggle. It was, I look at it now as, okay, but I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it turned out pretty well going by this. And so it, it initially that wasn't much fun. But Amen. but it was also very lucky, and I I wouldn't trade it. You know, twenty one years I later. Think, I also think if you had made the movie that was really successful in that moment, a PG thirteen movie that didn't have the edge on it, it might have done better. Okay, but it wouldn't. We wouldn't be sitting here talking. About I was just going to say, there's a know? lot of movies that came out in 1997 that none of us care about, and I would never sit down for an hour and be ecstatic to talk to the writer of. So. Uh, I know we're running out of time. Thank you so, so much for stopping by today. There is one more thing we have to get to because you're the writer. It's our Uh-oh. favorite line. And uh, it's just very short and sweet and simple. Uh, I said mine earlier. It's that line uh, that uh, that Rico ends up saying later on but is originally given by his teacher about, you know, I only got one rule. But the other one that I love is right when he figures out that Buenos Aires has been bombed, the girl behind him is... Goddamn bugs! What does she say? She says, uh, no, it's, "Oh yeah, it's dizzy." Yeah, she goes, "Goddamn bugs whacked us, Johnny." <laughs> I just—it's so melodramatic, but it's so perfect in the moment. I remember watching that. I like rewound it like three times. I was like, "She is so committed to this line." It's beautiful. But this is what a great actor yes. does for you. They can take the silliest line, yes. and make it sing. And I love actors for that. I truly do. I'm glad you went to that. My right. favorite line in a script full of great dialogue is one word. Medic! Medic! <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do that when I stub my toe, I scream, Medic! I still to this day, that's a, that's a line in my head. Because it, become, it becomes <laughs> this, so... this horrifyingly funny 
It just gets, it's like the rule of three in Shakespeare. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and more yeah. horrifying. But it's also this grand guignol level of violence that it's just, it's just, that that line I think encapsulates the whole movie for that's, me. That's been a lot of the people's favorite lines. I've seen them yell that out. I also love the, why do we need to learn how to use a knife in a gunfight? You just fight. put a nuke a fight, nu- you just push a button, it's over, right? He's like, put your hand up. Oh, God, I love it. As a kid, I was like, <gasps> I was like terrified. It's, it's, me. it's, J- it's Jake at his best. Yeah. It's such an amusing moment. Anyway. Jake Busey is phenomenal. Uh, Ed, do you have a favorite line? Well, you know, I, it's really hard. It's there. there you know, it's like your children. Yeah, but, totally. uh, You know, I do just from an, a conceptual standpoint. I really like. Do you want to know more? Because it, 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 it as it's repeated, brilliant. it it gives you more and more meaning or something. But it's not the funniest line in the world. No, you know? no. Hey, it can but, be any line. There's no rules to it. Uh, all right. The very last thing we're going to cover, guys. There's three action movie categories. It's totally ridiculous, totally legitimate, or ridiculously legitimate. And this movie is a very interesting one to talk about because on the surface level, you'd go, it's totally ridiculous. There's nothing about this that really it's in space, blah, 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 blah. But I actually think after talking about it today and how it's been received over the last 20 years, I think this movie's ridiculously legitimate. I think it's right, in the middle category. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because... Every time you watch it, it's a different movie. Yeah, because and if and it was totally legitimate, it wouldn't it wouldn't land the way that we wanted. We wouldn't be talking about it today because the satire has made it so culturally relevant. You mean have to be, it couldn't, it's a little subversive, and so it can't be completely legitimate yes. and a little subversive. Yeah. Well, I was telling you this outside. Right. I, this feels like a John Waters science fiction film in the sense that it's gleeful and it celebrates the craziness, but it's also got this very specific, very very human and very intelligent point of view. It's it, 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 This movie is a test, text case about how things just magically come together in a way that's lightning in a bottle. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. It was lucky that way. It really was. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Mark Thanks and Ed Newmar, you guys are amazing. That was such a fun episode. I don't think that there are two more qualified people to talk about Starship Troopers in the world right now. So, guys... Thank you once again. We'll have to bring you back on maybe for the 25 year. We can get you, you and Casper in here. Who knows you if bet. we're still we'll doing AMA. Uh, guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can find me online at Andrew Guy. We'll be back here next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Take care. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the host only, do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners and principals.